This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Have your Bible with you this morning. If you could turn to the book of 1 Peter. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke on 2 Peter, so I just want us to look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise the Lord. God is good. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read actually the first nine verses. It sort of sets the stage for what we're talking about this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims uh, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for, the, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again uh, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do see him, uh, do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's great, you know, when we read the scriptures to know a bit of the background and what's going on. Peter, at this point in his life, uh, and at this point in the church's life, really, the, the church is coming under pressure. It's becoming under persecution. There's many ideas of when this particular book was written. Peter, arguably, is getting towards the end of his ministry. He's getting towards the end of his life. As we know, when he gets to Second Peter, he's really telling young Timothy, this is it. <laughs> Things are going bad, you know, but keep going. And here in First Peter... Uh, he's, he's encouraging the church. Um, the ideas of going on around at the time, this could have been written as late as 64 AD. This is just after the time when Nero has burnt Rome. The city has been destroyed. Um, the people have turned to Nero, the emperor, and with the destruction of Rome. And they've learned, turned to him as the world did at, after 9-11. They all turned to the leader and said, who did it? Who's responsible? And the, the Rome turned to Nero, who was the emperor at the time, and said, who did it? Who's responsible? And Nero looked around and he went, right, who did it? There's a group of people over there. Everyone thinks they're a wee bit dodgy. They're secretive. They meet in the catacombs at the edges of the city and under the city. They're a society we're not too sure about. They're atheists. They called Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. Not because they didn't believe in gods, we use the word atheist today, but they didn't believe in the gods that the, the Romans believed in the people of those days. So they were suspicious, they were strange people, and they said, they're the ones responsible. They did it. 
Now, historians and probably many of the elite at the time believed that Nero did it, but the masses then went, oh, you're right, this is terrible. And this started a period of persecution. The church has always had a wee bit of persecution, even from its inception. There was persecution by the Jews. They didn't like the Christians because they were strange. They believed in other gods, but they, they believed in another god as they, believed, as they accused us. And they didn't like Christians. They said, oh, you're twisting the faith. You're corrupting it. You know, I'm sure they actually accused us of being no better than Samaritans, really, for mixing our faith with other faiths. And that's what they thought. Little did they know that their scales were on their eyes and they did not know the truth. So here at this time, the church is coming under persecution, not just from Jews, which they could deal with, but they're coming under more organized persecution, more organized hostility from the government. And it's fascinating to read. If you ever do any, if you ever got a few, a few minutes or a, few, a wee bit of time, look up some of the persecutions against the church and what people went through for their faith. People endured. You know, really, what we go through today compared to what they went through, we're not there yet. We're not at that point yet. People who endured great hardships, put up with such uh, hostility and violence and death and torture for the sake of Christ and the gospel. It's a remarkable. But Peter here is writing amidst all this. This, this is all which the, the backdrop to it. And he wants to encourage the church. He wants to stir them up. He wants to remind them of the things that are important. And here's the reason why you're getting persecuted. Here's, here's, here's the framework of why. Because sometimes it's good for us to know why. We can think it's because of the color of my skin or it's because of the place I live in. But it's not. Peter's reminding them it's not because of something as stupid or as material as those things. There's more important reason. As, as Pastor reminds us when it comes to Israel and the conflict with the Arabs, it's not just because they're Jews and we're not Jews. It's something spiritual. There's something happening. This is a piece of land that God has said, this is my land. So in the same way, Peter is reminding the church that you're coming under persecution because of certain things, because of what's going on, because of what you have said is significant in your life. 1 Peter 5, 13, Peter writes and he says that he's, he's, he's writing this from Babylon. Now, we don't know where Babylon was. We don't, we don't know whether he was talking about Babylon in Mesopotamia. We don't know if he was talking about Babylon, which was an Egyptian military outpost and, and town. Or we don't know if he was losing it metaphorically and talking about Jerusalem. Or maybe he was talking about Rome and he was there. He was writing from a place anyway that he was identifying with. 1 Peter 5, 12, he says, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand steadfast, uh, stand fast in it. So he's, he's, he's saying, my purpose is to encourage you, to, to, to stir you up, to encourage you to stand fast in the middle of this hostility, in the middle of the persecution. I love the idea of him being, and I've said this before, Peter is like a big spoon. He's stirring up the sugar that's in the bottom of the teacup. He's reminding us again of the important things, of the reason we're in the situation we're in, not because of something material or something that's happening or because of our race. It's happening because of something we believe in. And he's stirring them up. He's stirring up a reminder of why we're here, but also of hope for the future. You know, it's important to have hope for the future. It's important to know that what we're going through today will end. Amen. Isn't it important in our lives? And these things came to pass. It's important to know that these things will come to pass. So in the, in the opening uh, pa 
chapter, or verses, I should say, uh, Peter is giving an explanation of where he's going to go, an explanation of the pilgrim life, an explanation of our lives as we are. And then he goes on in the rest of it to, ex- to explore what he's just explained, to exhort us on how to live that Christian life. And I want to really just focus on four verbs that are important for the Christian life, four verbs in the Christian life. And they're very simple. Um, Pastor said he's frazzled. So I'm going to say that we're all frazzled. We've had a a World Cup week. We've had a 12th of July week. You know what? Let's just just keep it simple today. (laughs) So he wants to look at four verbs that are important for the Christian life. Um, And the first one there in verse verse 7 and 8 He starts off there, whom having not seen you love, love, love seems to jump off the page here. Up to this point, he's talking in terms of tenacity, of determination. He's talking about endurance. He's painting a picture of a world that is hostile to Christianity. You crucified Christ. Look, oh, your faith will be tried and tested. There's images there which are tough images and they're, they're, they're images to stir us up and make us determined. But he brings in the word love, and it seems to jump off the page. It seems to lo- jump up as, a, as at odds with what has just been spoken of. Uh, to the pilgrims, he mentions the pilgrims. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being more precious, much more precious than gold that perishes. See the imagery that he's using here and what he's talking about? The world in conflict, the world that rejected Christ, the world that's hostile to you. And he says, then he comes along and he says, in contrast, this is about Jesus. Um, Find praise and honor, glory. Whom, having not seen, you love. It stands out. Why say love? Why not say serve? Jesus, whom you serve. Surely that would be more in keeping with what's going on. Or maybe Jesus, whom you follow. You know, there's other admonitions through the scriptures where it talks about Jesus, whom you believe. But here he comes along and he's reminding the church, he says, this is Jesus whom you love. I'm not focusing on the fact that you haven't seen him not today. That's not the message. But it's whom you love. He starts with an emotion almost. He starts with the idea of love. Now remember, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. And the Jews were very aware of what the, the, the scriptures commanded. In Deuteronomy 65, and even Jesus repeated this in, in Matthew 25, it says, whenever he's confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it says, when it, um, Matthew 25, 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37 says, Jesus said to him that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Again, that's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. To the the Pharisees and to the religious, love was something that was unknown to them. They didn't understand how it was meant to apply to their lives, how they were meant to express it, how it was meant to fill them, how they were meant to grapple with this. They were known for being obedient people, obedient people and religious people and disciplined people. But here, this new (laughs) faith came along, which talks now about love. Yes, it talked about it in the Old Testament, but they had missed something of the importance of it and the value of it. It's a wonderful truth that love is at the heart of our relationship with God. It is not something programmed or coerced, but freely given. For God is love and he loves us and that we love him because he first loved us. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. It's his goodness, it is his love and it's his mercy that is the instigator of all that he does for us. And in two, coming to him, 
that we get to the point where we love him because of the awesomeness of what he has done for us. Christianity stands head and shoulders above other religions. And those who spend their lives striving for perfection, striving for goodness, striving for acceptance, never knowing, not until the end of their life, do they ever know whether they have done enough, whether they have struggled enough. Even the pagans in the time that, that Peter is writing this, the pagans were known to worship the gods, to honor the gods, to revere the gods. You don't really read of them loving the gods because love was unknown to them. So Christianity, Peter's reminding him, has an element to it that no one else has, love. I'm reminded of the apologist I heard speaking, and he's talking about, our, about different religions. And he paints the picture, and he says it's like a, a woman and a man who meets, and the woman wants to be married to the man. And he says to her, right, no problem, we can, we can be married. I need some guarantees, though. I need to know that you're going to make my breakfast in the mornings. I need to know that you're going to make the bed. I need to know you're going to cook dinner. I need to know you're going to be a wee kiss on the cheek on the way out in the morning. I need to know that you're going to do my laundry. I need to know you're going to keep the house tidy. I need to know, I need to know, I need to know. And the, the, the woman might go, okay, it's all right. I agree to that. I, I, that's reasonable. Now, I'm not advocating a way of life. Wife's looking at me now, so she is. <laughs> I, I'm <laughs> seen her recently. Something that said that you know I'm not helping the wife do dishes. I'm doing the dishes. <laughs> She's you know, <laughs> but you know, you paint that picture. If you do all these things, that's okay. We're going to be married. But now I need to see 50 years of evidence to, to support the, the reality that you can do that before we'll get married. That's not what religion is. You know, you, you do all these things. And if you've done enough at the end, then we'll get married. Then we'll be happy and we'll live together. But that's not what Christianity does. That's not what Christ does. I want to be married to you. What does he say? Well, okay, there's things I want you to do. Let's get married. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a book on how to live your life. And you know what? I'll do even better. I'll give you the Holy Spirit and he'll help you. Isn't that wonderful? So we don't have to wonder to the end of our lives what we're going to be like, whether we're going to go do enough. We have received that love. We've received that forgiveness, received that acceptance. Isn't that wonderful? It's it's in stark contrast. Here in in the pagan world, they knew nothing of this. Even in our world today, with all the religions and all the the isms out there, it knows nothing of these things. They're a mystery to them. Uh, This is not the way that Christianity works, not the way relationship with God works. One of the greatest things Pentecostalism gave to the world, uh, the Christian world, was this emphasis upon personal relationship with God. You read some of the old writers from the 1800s and 1700s and 1600s going on back. They talk about God in wonderful terms, and, and I, I don't doubt their sincerity and salvation. I'm not saying that. But there's a marked difference in the church today than there was back then. Today we emphasize over and over and over again a personal relationship with God. Don't we? We say it over and over again. We hear Franklin Graham talking about it, personal relationship with God. Other churches do it now. It's all over the church because we can't just merely just come as a mass and just go through the oceans. We have to have the personal encounter with God. You know, in the Muslim faith, they talk about being servants and subject and uh, serving Allah. But in Christianity, we talk about adoption. We talk about a, a belonging to the family of God, no longer strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. 
a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that sense of belonging, that sense of relationship. It's a powerful element to our relationship with God, to our faith. And he's reminding these, these believers in the midst of persecution, you've got something more than a duty. Yes, as we've spoken before, duty and responsibility are important, but you've got more than that. You're engaged with God in a way that the world doesn't know anything about, that other religions don't know anything about. Cyprian of Carthage, the great uh, uh, early church father, he says, men imitate the gods whom they adore. And don't they imitate the, the gods that they adore? The gods who are hostile, who are capricious, who do things off the cuff, who are strict and who are seen as, as harsh, who are seen as, as vindictive, who are seen as black or white and nothing in between. But do we imitate the God whom we love? who is God of love, encouraged over and over again to love one another. 1 John 3, it says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But, more, but whoever has the, lo- the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, uh, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love the world uh, let us not love in the world, in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So love is the, great, is the first great verb I was looking at this morning in our lives as believers. Love, loving God, loving one another is something important for us to keep focused on. The second great verb as we get on to these, into the next one here is believing. It said, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing. Yet believing. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Uh, for the same Lord is over all the rich who call upon him. Um, for over all is rich who call upon him. Uh, for whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. We're talking about belief based on fact. Belief based on a reality. <clears throat> this is a direct anchor. If we ha- all we had was love, we could get caught up, caught up in emotionalism, sentimentality, uh, as sophomoric experiences and spiritual immata- immaturity. We could be swept away with anything. Oh, it's in the name of love. And it's important, like I said, to have love and to, to, to focus on our love for God and our love for one another. But here, P- P- Peter's reminding them that there's something solid behind it. There's some reality. And I, as I thought about this, I thought to myself... There's a difference between, between believing that and believing in. There's a difference between believing that and believing in. I might believe that France will win the World Cup, but it's different from me saying that I believe in France to win the World Cup. Because when I say I believe that, it just hangs in the air. It just hangs there. It's a statement that, yeah, I believe that. You know, I believe that Ken will catch me if I fall back into his arms. I believe that that Ken can do that. I was going to say Jamie, but everyone believes that. (laughs) I believe that. 
but it's different for me to actually get Ken up and to fall back into his arms and say, I believe in Ken to catch me. There's a very much of a, a difference between believing that and believing in. It's even easy to say, let's be honest, it's easy to say from the evidence and from eyewitness accounts and from historical evidence that that Jesus existed, that he lived in Israel or Palestine. It's easy to say that he lived a life and he died. It's easy to say from the, from the evidence, eyewitness testimonies that happened. It's very different to say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my savior, that he came and he lived a life for me, to save me, to redeem me. It's very different. One involves nothing, just merely the repeating of words or the nodding of, at, at an appointed time, but believing in requires me to do something. It requires me actually to, to, to engage in a deeper way. Believing in Jesus' death on the cross as an atonement for my sins causes me to question my choices. See, people might believe that he lived, but I believe in him. I believe that in his work on Calvary, I believe that he came and he did things that were significant. So this is another verb that's important for the church, loving him, but believing in him. Just take a step beyond just mere emotion and getting into the point where we're going, yes, he did it. He lived the life. He he was the sacrifice. It's a confidence and assurance of what he has done. We're getting through these quickly. We've only got four and we're on number three already. So number three, he goes on to say, rejoice. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now this is going to be the test to see if there's any Pentecostals in the house today. It's going to be the test for you. I'm just putting you out there on notice to see whether there's any Pentecostals here today. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoicing has been one of the marks of a Christian's life. It has been one of the things that has separated us from many things that happens in the world and draws attention to us. It draws attention to us because when we've got something to rejoice about, people start to ask, what are you rejoicing about? It pulls attention to us. But we're not doing it to draw attention to us. We're doing it to rejoice in what God has done and who he is. Rejoice is an, to rejoice is an attitude of the heart, is a decision, an expression of contentment and hope. Pentecostalism has long been one of those denominations, I hate using the word denomination, but denominations that is marked, or the, uh, marked by its rejoicing, by being the happy clappy people, the people who had something to sing about. They think something to rejoice in, something to celebrate, not just sit in sort of some, some, some place and just go, God is good. Internalize that emotion. Just sit on it and like a stoic. We're in a day and age where people want to know what's real. They want to know what's real. And what better way to express the reality of Christ's change in our lives, of Christ's salvation, than to express it? Let people know that it's good news. You know, in in the early church, we're talking about persecution. In the early church at the uh, Basilica, they they put these 40 believers in the water, this pool of water at night in winter, and they said, you're going to stay there until you die or until you recant. And they sat in the water and they, they prayed and they worshiped God. They prayed and they worshiped God. 
Two of them went after a number of hours, went, I can't hack this. I can't, and two of them got out of the water. But their testimony of their, their worship and their prayers was such that two of the Roman guards got into the water beside them, took their places. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's the power of God. That's the testimony of God's done in our life. Whenever it's expressed, whenever it's poured out, people will see it and they'll see Christ in us. They'll see what Christ has done for us and in us and they'll be moved. There are ample reasons to rejoice in what God has done for us. We have multitude of reasons. There are also ample excuses for not rejoicing. Ample excuses. And I have a few notes. This is your test today. See whether you're Pentecostal or not. Uh, feel free. Feel free if, if, you, 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 if you want to shout amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All those are acceptable. Even a glory would do, you know. Uh, <laughs> Sharon keeps saying to me every, every time I'm speaking, she says to me, I want to see you dancing on that pulpit. So if any of you feel like dancing, feel free. Feel free to celebrate. Feel free to rejoice. We have eternal life and can never lose it. Amen. Glory to God. We are one with Christ. Jesus has paid for every sin that we ever have committed and ever will commit. Amen. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Freedom. Tell you about it. It's all about freedom from sin, freedom from bondage. Glory to God. Here, better get on. Better get on. God himself is our father. Glory to God. Isn't that wonderful? There is absolutely no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Woo! Praise the Lord. We are no longer slaves to sin or under its dominion. We are joint heirs with Christ and will share his reward. We have a sympathetic high priest who intercedes for us night and day. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in, in empowers, comforts, and counsels us. Our God is our refuge and strength and strong tower. We have the grace of God. Amen. Glory to God. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. I think I've got a few excuses to praise God. Amen. I think I've got a few excuses to rejoice. Yeah. I mean, it's not, nothing I've read is circumstantial. None of those are circumstantial. Those are all things that God has done for us. It's not about the size of my house or the car or the state of my job. These are things that are important. These are things that are spiritual. These are things that we can really get behind and rejoice in, regardless of what goes on around us. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Ah, oh, praise the Lord. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Oh, that's wonderful. God is working all things together for good. I tell you. Persecution and trouble and strife may come, but God is working all things together for good. Someday we will be reunited with our loved ones who have gone on before. Ah, praise the Lord. It's wonderful. The creator of the universe hears our every prayer. That blows my mind. He hears our prayers. Wow. God has a purpose for our lives which he will certainly fulfill. God is good. I've got too many. I could keep going. Glory to God. We've got a reason to rejoice, don't we? A reason to celebrate. A reason to go. Glory to God. Things are tough. Work's stressful. Family's getting on my wick. Glory to God. He's still good. Praise the Lord. Things are tough. 
I'm jet lagged. Glory to God, this thing's still good. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Yes. We have a, a, a God who's absolutely fabulous. Yes. We have an absolute reason to rejoice and sing and glorify him. You know, truly we can say, truly we can say he grows sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Amen. Can't we truly? Because it was those things, they fade out of sight and they fade out of our vision. And we stop looking at those things that are going on. We look more to him and we focus on what he has done for us. Oh, with Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. Praise the Lord. And the last point is, so we had love, we had believing, we had rejoice. And now we've got receiving. Yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's reminding the church that you've been saved. Yes, I know there's three elements to salvation that they talk about in Scripture, that I was saved, that I am being saved, and that I will one day be saved. That I have received forgiveness for my sins, that the power of the Holy Spirit working in me is purifying me and sanctifying me today, and that one day we'll be reunited with Christ and we'll be totally saved from everything in this world. And here Peter is thinking about these things. He's listening, even if it all goes to pot, even if you have to lay down your life, just remember that He has saved you, that He has done a work. The divine deal is done. Elwell put it this way. He's a, Elwell said, regarding this passage, he said, Jesus too is unseen. But even so, with our eyes fixed on hidden realities, we will love him and our hearts will thrill with a joy that surpasses language. And even now partakes of the glory that is yet to be. We already hear the strains of heavenly praise and share in heavenly joy because we are already receiving the salvation of our souls even in the midst of suffering. Isn't it wonderful? Amidst the things that go on around us, as persecution becomes more intense, certainly in our part of the world, it'll become more intense against the church, against our values, against the things that we hold dear, things that scriptures teach us. Increasingly, every day, the pressure is mounting for us to compromise on the big things of the, of the word, of the truths and of God's standards. We're going to be under more persecution over the coming years, coming days and coming years. And it's good to know that God is with us. It's good to know that we have a hope and we have things to rejoice about. It's good to know that this isn't the end for us, that one day soon and very soon we're going to see the King. Isn't that wonderful? So those are the four verbs that are important for the Christian life that will get us through all that we face. Love, believe, rejoice, and receive. And with that, thank you, Lord. Praise you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.